0: Welcome to this episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but you can call me Mike. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. David Eaton. He is an associate professor at Grand Valley State University, just outside Grand Rapids, Michigan. He earned his PhD at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia in 2008, where he completed a dissertation entitled. Violence, Revenge, and the History of Cattle Raiding along the Kenya-Uganda border, circa 1830-2008. So if I'm the colonial sewer rat guy, I guess he's the colonial cattle guy. But he's also the podcast guy, along with Matt Drewinsky, Dave Eaton hosts uh, On Top of the World, an informative and very fun podcast about the field of world history. They put out about 50 episodes on all things world history, including new books, research agenda, how to teach world history, some critical and very interesting discussions of the AP exam industry, and my favorite podcast title episode, uh, favorite podcast episode title ever, fuck Neil Ferguson. (laughs) I urge you to check out On Top of the World. It's a rollicking good time for all. But today we'll be talking about his new book. World History Through Case Studies, Historical Skills and Practice, which came out in 2019 with Bloomsbury Academic. Professor David Eaton, Dave, welcome to New Books in History.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah,
0: so I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about this book, as I think so many listeners may be in the, quote, world history crisis. That is to say, they completed their PhD in an narrow subject of research and are continuing their research on their little corner of the world But when they get a job, they're asked to teach these massive world history courses that cover all kinds of places and time periods that they don't work on and aren't that familiar with. So for many of us, it can be bewildering and exhausting. I know that in my first couple of years teaching world history, I really sort of floundered about trying to figure out how to do this, as many of us weren't even properly trained in teaching world history in graduate school. Now, fortunately, your book, World History Through Case Studies, offers a really nice game plan for tackling these courses. So thank you for that contribution. Uh, Now, before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be uh, first a scholar of East African cattle wrestlers, and then a professor of world history?
1: Yeah, thanks again for having me. And it is a little bit of, there are quite a few twists and turns to this story, I guess. I ended up doing my undergrad at Trent University in Central Ontario and absolutely loved that school and had a, a real fascination with history going into that. Um, I really wanted to be a history major from the get go. However, I wasn't familiar at all with African history until I ended up starting taking courses with Professor Timothy Stapleton, who ended up uh, being one of my favorite profs at, at Trent, who introduced me to African studies as a whole, and he really encouraged me to pursue it at the graduate level. And so I got accepted to a master's program at Queen's University on the basis of that recommendation, and I started writing a theoretical piece about conflict and conflict resolution in I want to say Sierra Leone, as like my big, uh, my big piece of work at that time. And you know, I was writing this piece. it was very theoretical, and I had started traveling a lot uh, to places like Europe, and I began to, you know look for opportunities to travel to the African continent. Again, as I was working on this, this was obviously something I needed to do. And it was, it was funny, it was during my spring break, uh, I was able to buy myself a couple of weeks and I said, okay, where should I go here? And as a grad student at, uh, at Queens, I had a stipend of $12,000 a year minus tuition. So I was looking for deals and the best deal I could find was Kenya. And the reason for this was Kenya in December, uh, just prior to that, I believe it was in 2002, had experienced a terror attack on an israeli charter jet so people took a shot at it with stinger missiles while it was taking off no one got hurt or anything they missed but all of a sudden the cost of a flight to kenya plummeted. tourism got so, a lot
0: cheaper okay <laughs> it,
1: it really did so i looked at those it was like eight hundred dollars i think to fly to kenya from canada and i was like okay i'll do that i'm gonna travel to kenya and you know my uh, supervisor at that point uh was bob shenton and, and bob shenton's uh He's an interesting character. Um, I don't, I still don't know if I, if I love him or hate him. Uh, <laughs> he had these, you know, pedagogical tools that probably would not be widely acceptable now. I remember when we were doing a, a class in a mixed graduate undergraduate seminar on the Rwandan genocide. And he had me come to his office that morning to talk about the readings. And I, I talked about him for a bit and he said, that's good Dave, you're gonna teach the class today. And I was like, "What? <laughs> Three-hour seminar, and I had to lead the entire thing on like six hours' notice, which was excellent training for being a prof." Well, a
0: fortunately, it was a nice, gentle subject to get thrown into, right? Like, you know. right?
1: <laughs> so, so you know, he he was a bit like that. How, how did it go? How did it go? He, he at the end, he he looked me in the eyes and he said, "Dave, you did well," and that was it. But that was as big a compliment <laughs> as I think I ever got from him. So I was I was very uh, flattered by that. But the good advice he gave me, the really best piece of advice he gave me when he found out I was going to Kenya, and I was all sort of, okay, I need to find a research project. I need to figure out what I'm going to do for my PhD. And he said, Dave, when you go to Kenya, don't, don't look for a project. Just do what you would normally do if you were traveling anywhere. But keep your eyes and ears open. And, you know, it's, it's very simple advice, right? But it was really kind of illuminating for me. At that time, I was really into mountain climbing. I'd spent a lot of time in Europe uh, climbing mountains and I was going to Kenya. And, you know, Mount Kenya is kind of a famous climbing destination. And so I was like, okay, I'll climb Mount Kenya. Didn't have enough money to pay national park fees for like a week while I was acclimating. So I went to a part of Western Kenya called the Cherangani Hills to acclimate to the altitude so I could do a quick climb of Mount Kenya. And it was while I was in the Churangani Hills, I was doing this trek, and a lot of the Churangani Hills are these rolling rolling hills at about 8,000, I think it's up to around 10,000 feet in elevation. And I did a week-long trek across there with a guide. And as I was trekking across these beautiful, idyllic hills right on the edge (laughs) of the Rift Valley, and everywhere there was a police presence, a military presence, the Kenyan army had camps set up there, the uh, uh, general service unit, sort of Kenyan commandos, slash government hit squad. They were there. The anti-stock theft unit, um, which had colonial origins, was there as well. And I was just talking to my guide, like, well, what's going on here? And he said, oh, it's the cattle raiding. There was a really bad killing, uh, which I later learned was the Mercuto massacre, which killed, I believe, over 50 people Hmm. in 2001. Uh, And so you know, I was doing a master's on conflict in Africa and I'd never heard of this. All I'd heard about Kenya was sort of safaris and, you know, this sort of idyllic site in a lot of ways, certainly some political issues with authoritarianism and that, but I I had no idea. And so I asked the guide about the, the history of this cattle wrestling and he said, oh, well, it's been going on since time immemorial. And that really became the germ of The project that I ended up pursuing for my PhD, where I was thinking about, okay, time immemorial seems like it's probably an oversimplification, but it suggests this has (laughs) a very long history, right? And then thinking about how this has changed over time, what what the dynamics have been like during the pre-colonial, the colonial colonial and the post-colonial period, what kind of things represent critical shifts in that. And in particular, it was fascinating to me because it would involve talking to people because the archival records, again, are very in-depth for the colonial period, much sparser for the pre-colonial and post-colonial periods. And the colonial archives are just rife with all sorts of the issues that make colonial archives, you know, problematic in almost any topic. And that was really enticing to me, this chance to kind of try and put together this very hard to craft history, this very challenging history to research. And so I ended up talking to Gary Kynek, who studied gangs in South Africa. He was the only Canadian Africanist who really really studied anything similar. And he told me he'd actually done research on cattle raiding in Lesotho and the border between Lesotho and South Africa, and that he would love to supervise a, a project like this. So that ended up becoming my PhD topic. And that was sort of completed at Dalhousie University. You know, doing my research, my supervisor didn't know much about Kenya, so I had to really find people, find resources, cultivate sources. My key uh, uh, intermediary in the region was Andrew Juma, who was a veterinarian and who really shifted the focus of my project from the hilltops and the Cheringani Hills down to the plains at the base of the Rift Valley, um, where cattle are much more important and where cattle rating is a little bit different. Um, and that became, yeah, that became the project. Uh,
0: and in, in yeah. the project, because it, it goes up to the year that you're writing it um, and finishing it, 2008, you must've been doing oral interviews and um, non non-archival research and something closer to anthropology or sociology at that point.
1: Yeah, it ended up really sort of bleeding into a number of other subjects. And I feel very fortunate that I began in African studies. And African studies, I mean, it, it certainly has its problems, but I think one of the most progressive aspects of African studies has been the willingness to embrace interdisciplinary approaches. And so not quite being an anthropologist, not quite being a historian, sort of being in, in betwixt and in between, wasn't necessarily viewed as a, a, a flaw, that that could also be a strength. And, you know, there are certainly limits to what I could do. Uh, I, I don't know that my project was perfect. I, I don't know that any of us look back on our PhDs and think our project was was done as well as it could have been. But uh, for me, that piecing together of this story from both colonial archives, but also from in-depth interviews, and I did roughly 250 interviews in total. All of them were recorded and those interviews were crucial resources, you know, that really became the the, the beating heart of the project. So yeah, that, that different methodologies, um, that's so important to basically doing histories in places where that history was either recorded in different ways or just the notion of history was understood in a different way. It, 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 does make the project very, very challenging in some ways, but I think it also does make it very rewarding as you begin to uncover these different layers of meaning to, you know, the information you're gathering.
0: Yeah. And, and so many of the, the great books in world history have that interdisciplinary nature and teaching in world history. You really, really need to think outside the traditional confines of the discipline of world history. So, or discipline of history. So how, how did you wind up uh, going from specializing in, you know, a a fairly niche subject of um, East African history to teaching the world?
1: Yeah. And this, this story, I think will be familiar to, you know, a number of early career scholars Basically, I got my first job in 2008. It was a visiting professor gig at Albion College in sort of the southern part of Michigan. And that was sort of my toehold into the job market. And I was on the job market in 2009. And that was just a surreal experience. Um, African history, again, a lot of the the impact of the financial meltdown at that point was still, we were still processing it. So a lot of Uh, hires. The
0: financial crisis is hitting university budgets a year, two years out. Right. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And so, you know, Albion college was, was hit very hard by this. They canceled the, you know, I was filling in for another Africanist on a short-term basis. He had landed uh, a job at St. Lawrence university. And the plan was to replace him uh, in a tenure track position. And I was interviewing for that. And they, you know, they had all their investments in Wachovia and Wachovia ceased to exist. And they oh, were like, you know, we're probably not going to be doing this hire. And I would say roughly a third of the positions I applied for just, they just stopped responding. Many of them never gave us any updates. They just sort of, the the searches just disappeared but there were enough jobs available still that it wasn't unrealistic to think, you know, I could land a tenure track job. And so I was very fortunate to end up at GVSU, um, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and which is uh, a wonderful school. It is a teaching school though. And that really is, really is what they focus on. They were hit pretty hard by the financial crisis as well. I think Michigan really, really suffered at that time. So you know, my research budget for each year um, that I was looking at was roughly $800, including all conference travel, including all, you know, book purchases, everything like that. And, you know, as I looked at that, and I looked at, you know, what my future would be, it just felt kind of disingenuous to remain a regional specialist. I, I didn't know that I could do that well. I didn't know that I could ever be in Kenya or Uganda for more than, you know, a few weeks a year. And I, you know, I was teaching a through 3 load. Almost all of those courses were undergraduate surveys. vast majority were world history surveys. And, you know, I decided to begin to step back a little from the research projects. I, I, I finished up sort of what I had ongoing at that time. And then I began to sort of try to focus my energy on doing a better job of you know, teaching these surveys that, you know, when I first got there, I just kind of cracked a textbook, read up, read it, wrote some notes, threw together a course. Um, you know, after a couple of years, I could begin. I think to- that's
0: what almost all of us uh, who teach world history at the university level were doing those first couple of years. I mean, one chapter ahead of the students. And did they hire you as an Africanist or uh, world or sort of Africa plus world or what was the
1: it was both they were they were very clear off the bat that world history was going to be a key part of this, and you know it was one of those things where i, I don 't know if you remember this, but where you remember some of those interviews that you completely fail at and it makes you a little bit better later and I had an experience of that I had one conference interview my first year on the job market, and it was with Wake Forest, and I was so excited about that, and I walked in there. I had really memorized all these questions about my research, all these responses to, you know, questions about my research. And the first question they asked me was, so what textbook would you use in a world history survey class? And I completely blanked. I had no idea. I I had to go back to the textbook I took in my first year undergrad course, which was the Earth and its Peoples. And then they had a follow-up obviously, which was, well, why would you do that? And I'm like... Not sure I know. And I remember at that moment being like, oh, I just spent a thousand dollars to come to Washington, D.C. to, you know, fail at this interview. (laughs) But it made me do a lot better the next year because I had a response ready for that. I kind of knew what I wanted to say. I thought about what type of world history class I would develop if I had that chance. And it made me better. Um, I was still salty about it, though, because I was just so (laughs) upset that I had screwed up that badly uh, prepping for that interview. So, yeah, that uh, that got me thinking about it a lot more, thinking in a more coherent way about what the meanings of world history were. And at GVSU, I had the exact same question at a faculty dinner. And uh, I believe Bill Morrison, our future chair, was there. uh, David Stark, I think, was there. A couple others were there. And they asked me, you know, what, what textbook would you use? And I could say, oh, I would use Tigner's Worlds Together, Worlds Apart. I really think it's the only textbook that takes a truly global perspective on this and all this. And even if I didn't fully understand it, even if I hadn't put that course together yet, I still could competently respond to that question in a way that I hadn't been the year before. And so for GV, they, they wanted me teaching world history. They, they wanted me to also be engaged as an African historian. That was also, uh, also a part of it. And so for me, my understanding of the position was that it would involve both things, that mm-hmm. I would be an African historian. I would also be a world history historian. And that you know, my tenure expectations, 60% of them were linked to teaching. That was the weight they placed so that was really my understanding of the situation going into right. it. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> your, your story about the job interview questions reminded me of, um my experience. I spent quite a few years in the job market. Came in second at some really wonderful schools around the nation. Don't bear anybody any <laughs> ill will um, with the question. Maybe okay a little salty. <laughs> which just maybe not on the podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> um But Don't when, I too many bridges. when I interviewed at Sac State, they had these scripted questions for all the candidates, and one of them was, um, "What do you think of, of big history, and would you teach it?" And oh, I, I was a teaching assistant along with Rick Warner, oh, well. former World History Association president, and yes. Driss Margui, who hosted Still the- Still a um, luminary
1: in the field and a guest on yeah. on Top of the World, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and Dris Margui, who um, hosted the WHA when it came to uh, Morocco um, all yeah. those years ago. Um, so I was in good company, and we, we TA'd the first big history class taught in the UC system
1: that's awesome. Well, it, and I I it mean did just go, get... it did not go yeah, it did not go well. Well, <laughs> that was that, brutal I mean, talk about the, overwhelming. <laughs>
0: it was brutal for us graduate student TAs to try and teach this class. I mean, it was just absolutely overwhelming. And um, I decided I would never teach it. And um uh I've been a card carrying anti big history uh, <laughs> world historian since then. And so I told them in the interview, um, I um no, I won't teach it. Um And here, here are my reasons. And evidently um, uh, that got me the job because uh, a few years later, one of my colleagues told me, yeah, you know, your answer to that, like everybody else said, oh, sure, we can do that. What's, what's big history? Sure, sure. But I actually had (laughs) some experience and said, no, it's, it's actually not history. And um, you could just watch Cosmos and pretty much accomplish the same thing. But (laughs) so so this this is a a nice segue into um what i wanted to ask you next next which is so what is your philosophy or your guiding principles now that you are a seasoned educator in, in world history what are your philosophy guiding principles for teaching world history
1: i mean first and i think most importantly take it as seriously as your research I mean, it's such a vast field. There's so much out there. You can always be learning something new your entire career if you have that energy. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's treated as an aside. It's treated as just something you have to do to be able to do the real work that, you know, you you expect. And, you know, I think there's been a shift in views on that. I think, you know, the view that teaching was not a serious the serious prof work that people did was you know maybe more common in the 2000s or 90s but i still really really do believe that world history and a world history survey especially something like a gen ed course which is primarily what i teach at grand valley i mean you really have to take the responsibility seriously if you are going to be the only history instructor your students will ever have at the college level if you are gonna be the only humanities instructor that your students will ever have in their their college career. I mean, that's such a, a vital role. And you know, you have to show them that you mean it, that you care about what you're teaching them. And you know, they're they're young, they're gonna make mistakes, that's all okay, it can be frustrating at times. But if they think you don't really mean it, if they get the sense that you're just showing up and conveying content and then leaving, you know, they're, that's what they're going to take away about history itself. That's what they're going to take away. Uh, uh, that's going to be their takeaway about the discipline. And so for me, you know, I think as a world history instructor, an instructor, we need to be bold. We need to learn a lot about it. We need to, you know, we need to tell students meaningful stories. And I think a lot of world history teachers try and equivocate or adjust courses to accommodate or, or to avoid conflict with students or perceived conflicts with students. And all that can be a problem too, because they, they pick up on that. They pick up on the reluctance. They pick up on that sense that because you are not, you haven't spent, You know 20 years of your life studying you know this one topic that you're just unwilling to say anything about it other than you know what's in a wikipedia page and so trying to go beyond wikipedia trying to go beyond what a textbook conveys to tell meaningful stories i think that's so important for showing students that history matters in their lives it matters in their world and again, even if it isn't something that you're fully comfortable with, I think we have to be willing to, to take risks and be bold in the process of teaching world history.
0: Yeah. So, so tell us about the book. Um, what did you want to accomplish with uh, world history through case studies and um, who's, who's the target audience? Um, Cause I was, I could see this book working for a couple of different audiences.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a challenge, I guess, to sort of identify specifically. I'm going to try and, 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 and do this, though. For me, I think the, the first overarching principle and, and the key inspiration for this uh, comes from a book from Stéphane Levesque called Thinking Historically. And basically what Levesque was trying to do in that book was to identify what he calls procedural concepts or ways of thinking that are specific to our discipline, things that historians do that others don't. And there's a number of ways to look at this, and we'll get into that a little bit later, I think. But one of the things for me that was really striking is how important being able to sort information is in the modern world, Mm -hmm. in in an era where students have access to just an incredible amount of information through their smartphones, through uh, the internet, that you know, being able to sort through an overwhelming amount of information and identify the good stuff, the stuff that's either reliable or representative or accurate, that that is so, so, so important. And to me, that's just so familiar. I I think historians are very good at this. Um, I know for my PhD, by the time I wrote it up, I had over 10,000 digital photos of archival records. I had over a thousand pages of single-spaced archival notes, I had at least 200 hours of interviews and then the the usual hundreds of books, articles, reports that I'd read uh, during the course of my PhD. And narrowing that down to 250 pages that give meaning to just this massive information, that is something that I think almost any historian who's put together a PhD is going to be very good at. But it's also something that we often do subconsciously because we've spent so much of our lives uh, just going through that process. And so making that clear to students, showing students how we can take an overwhelming amount of information on a topic and narrowing it down to the good stuff, to the meaningful stuff, to, uh, uh, to give those events a purpose, to give a narrative of those events a purpose. That to me is something that I really wanted to introduce students to. Um, as far as the target audience for this, it really was actually aimed at survey instructors. So this wasn't really designed necessarily to be for students. I think it could work for an undergraduate survey, but the audience that I really wanted to aim it for were high school and and college level instructors of world history surveys. And teachers of AP world history in particular were a really important audience to me. Um, I know AP courses, uh, they they have some uh, problems with them. And College Board, again, I don't think anyone <laughs> hates College Board more than people who either teach for them or <laughs> assess their tests. But, but on the other who hand... Had some
0: hates them the most are the people who did the online uh, AP grade oh. this year or, or last year or the year before. Um, yes, indeed. This year but was... There, just uh, to interrupt you, there are some great episodes of On Top of the World about AP and the um, the uh, AP uh, educational uh, complex, industrial complex. Of...
1: Yeah, and, and you know, the, but, the don't let me why, distract you, but but yeah, no. Well, and the reason why AP World is so important is it wasn't developed until I, I believe the course was in basically created in two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. And one of the advantages of the AP program to world historians was that it was one of the few areas where world historians could create something new and have autonomy over it. So you look at the the list of people who were involved in course design early on, and it's just sort of a who's who of the world history community. And the course they created is just a, a, brilliant, uh, a brilliant world history course because they had this freedom. And, you know, in a lot of academic departments, world history for a long time has been viewed with, you know, something between contempt and you know uh and complete opposition there there are a lot of incredible levels
0: of ignorance uh, yes
1: yes and uh, and you know pat manning has been trying mm -hmm. to change this trying to make world history more respectable as a research field but you get beyond pitt northeastern hawaii you know there's a couple other schools out there but it's it's not something that's really all that prestigious within the academic discipline of history and so ap became a space where world history could flourish outside of those conventional conventional realms and the ap world history course i mean it's it's almost getting to the point where it's comparable to us history in terms of its popularity you have well over 300,000 students every year taking that exam. There's a real thirst for world history, but universities are often pretty bad at providing for that. And the problem is you get these AP world history teachers who start teaching this, this wonderful history course, at least the, the pre, they they sort of mangled it last year. But before that, you know, this really wonderful course, and these teachers go into it, and they've taken like, two world history surveys, Mm -hmm. getting their education uh, credentials, and that's it. And they're looking for information because they're presented with this overwhelming course that college professors struggle with as well. And then they're asked to teach every day for, you know, nine months, 10 months. And they're looking for lessons plans. They're looking for information. They're trying to find ways to make this engaging for their students. And, you know, a lot of what they have is just content. And so trying to write a book that showed these teachers and early level college instructors what some of the historiographical debates are, what the historians about these topics are arguing about, for me was something that I really wanted to do, to to present that in accessible ways. You know, the chapters, most of them are eight to 10 pages. They're relatively short and it's done on purpose um, so that these very complex debates over, say, you know, who Confucius was and what Confucianism represents in Chinese history, trying to present that, but also show the limits of what we know, show the debates between academics over the the, the impact of Confucianism in places like rural China in the, you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century. Again, for teachers, they're going to have very little reason to be familiar with that to begin with but showing them how those debates ha- have gone, giving them a sense of why historians are arguing over these particular issues. I think it really can make these topics more engaging for them, more engaging for their students, and really make history come alive. And so that was really the overarching goal. Again, undergraduate students, I think, can handle this book. I've had a couple of oh, yeah, people yeah. teach it in their survey courses uh, since it's been published, and it, it seems to work fairly well in that context but really for the aim was really to help instructors come to terms with this again overwhelming task of trying to teach the history of the world.
0: Yeah, I was I was thinking about how I I could use it and I I think I could assign sections of it to my undergraduates um and uh for the, the survey class we also have a couple upper division courses um that are for the pre it's a pre-credential track within our major, so they're going to go on to get their teaching credential and these are proper content courses that are more or less aligned with the california state standards right i think yeah. this book would be excellent in that class and then I've, i teach a master's seminar on the historiography of world history and this would be a really great intervention to get them to to not think so textbook narrative like about yeah. uh, about how to organize world history
1: yeah, and it's it's trying to bring historical thinking into it, right? Because I think that's what gets missed in a lot of the textbook narratives, right? Like they're so constrained. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to textbooks. I mean, I got my start reading world history textbooks and and writing one of those textbooks just an well, incredible i don't know man yeah, having, having
0: having read this book you seem like you got a beef with textbooks are you sure well, and it? that, the, <laughs>
1: it, it's that flattening right and, yeah. and the thing that's frustrating to me and i think you know i think for there's a new generation of scholars who i think share a bit of this frustration but these textbooks are designed to meet state standards that yeah. are focused yeah. on content And the problem is you have to create all these artificial limitations on students now where you have to say, okay, you can't take your phone into the room. You can't do, you know, this or that, because a lot of the content based answers can easily be Googled by a student on a smartphone and and it's done. Right. And, you know, the problem for textbooks is that if you're so focused on this type of content, you have to create all these artificial barriers to make your assessments you know, work. Mm -hmm. And it's just so pointless. Like, what is the point of, you know, doing a good version of Wikipedia and having students memorize that? Again, students shouldn't have to memorize that. They have access to it at virtually all times. That shouldn't be what we're trying to teach because history is about other things, right? And this for me is why the textbook is kind of struggling at the moment. There's just been a dramatic shift in accessibility to information and it's making content-based assessment, it's making coverage-based courses just feel very outdated, feel very pointless for lack of a better term. And so textbooks, again, they have a role to play, especially in places with state standards um, where students have to memorize these things. But for me, that's just not that interesting. To me, what's interesting is how do they choose what goes into the textbook? How do they design those state standards? What topics are being you know, incorporated into world history surveys that shape our understanding of what the past means? And that, that is what I find really interesting about these things.
0: Yeah, well, well, let's let's circle back around to a couple of things you mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, you identify these five procedural concepts in the book, and you um, you say that mastering these concepts will help the reader to think historically. Um, yes. What are these concepts, and what does it mean to think historically?
1: Right. Um, again, for me, I'm using uh, Stephon Levesque's book uh, as my source for these uh, procedural concepts, and. He identifies five that are at the core of what historians do, what our discipline is about. So, the five concepts he includes are historical empathy, historical significance, evidence, progress and decline, and continuity and change. So, there are these five different ways of, of thinking that he thinks are kind of unique to historians. So, evidence, using evidence, the, the wide range of things that we can use as evidence to piece the past back together. Um, there's so many different ways of thinking about this. Uh, in my book, I delve into a lot of archaeological evidence. I talk a little bit about new ways of looking at genetic evidence and using genetic evidence to try and piece together the past. I also talk a lot about different types of sources uh, that are used or how new sources becoming available can reshape our understandings of things, um, particularly in this case related to things like uh, human sacrifice. So looking at narratives of the Mexica documents that were produced you know, one or two levels of remove from uh, uh, from the Mexica themselves, but trying to piece that story back together of what uh, they meant when they talked about Mexica religious practices. Um, you know, when we're talking about uh, historical significance. Why do certain historical debates occupy so much oxygen? Why are certain topics so fascinating to particular groups of people? So talking about the Vikings and their connection to white supremacists, and why do white supremacists feel such a connection to the Vikings? How did that develop? And then what are the impacts of that in the present and the impacts of how historians have studied the Vikings? about historical empathy the idea of assessing people on the terms of on on, in terms of their world but without necessarily legitimizing their beliefs um this historical empathy is something that i think has really risen to the forefront recently when talking about slaveholding um, among the founding fathers of the united states and you know the the understanding that on the one hand this was something that may have been widely accepted among their peers at the time, but that the slaveholding was certainly not accepted at that moment as, you know, something that was just inevitable, that there were numerous people who challenged those claims. So the new book by Marcus Rediker in particular, I think a nice counter to that. And then these two ways that historians assess the past um, judgments as to whether, you know, the course of history is leading towards progress or decline. Those narratives are extremely common and they're things that historians do very, very frequently, even if we like to deny that we do them. And, you know, illuminating that for students, uh, talking about Easter Island and narratives of its environmental decline. You know, one of the key issues is identifying when that decline happened. And, you know, that type of, that level of understanding of how historians disagree on when tree cover in, in uh, on Rapa Nui really uh, uh, disappeared and then the devastation that followed, you know, was that, uh, you know, Jared Diamond has his views on that, that it was their own fault for building Moai, but many anthropologists and archeologists would object to that and say that the decline of the forest was an ecological thing due to an invasive species, which may or may not involve rats, and that rats. Uh, rats, did you say rats? <laughs> I did, I did. Um, that they were eating palm kernels that prevented the trees from rejuvenating themselves. And then that the actual decline, such as it was, really actually began and became uh, particularly important after the arrival of Europeans who did some truly horrific things there. So, that again, a debate over when like, rat, this rats and is
0: colonists. Hmm, This is a great subject to study here.
1: And then and then, last but not least, continuity and change. Mm-hmm. You know, how dramatically are things shifting? And, you know, that's something that I think we're really in the midst of at the moment. You know, does COVID-19 represent a really dramatic break with the past? I mean, maybe we are living through a moment of, of dramatic or drastic or widespread change. Um, you know, I'm sure there will be counter arguments 10, 20 years from now that will say that we were just, you know, Hysterical, and that really there weren't that many changes that were happening at this moment. Um, A lot of historians prefer narratives of continuity, suggesting that changes maybe weren't as dramatic. Um, For me, I like to delve into traditional moments that are are considered moments of change, like the Industrial Revolution, and explore those, see how dramatic those changes were, but also look at elements of continuity that might have carried over from er earlier eras and yeah for me that uh, that again is at the heart of that procedural concept so those are the five procedural concepts again i use 20 case studies i try and include a number of case studies on each of these to illuminate the these different procedural concepts in my own course this is the core of my assessment so i'm assessing how well students can recognize these procedural concepts and then connect different case studies together and how they illuminate these ways of thinking historically.
0: Yeah. So the, I mean, the book, uh, again, World History Through Case Studies is composed of 20 case studies, as you said. Um, How did you select them? And what were your, what, what what about selecting these 20 case studies? What did you want to accomplish?
1: Oh my goodness. I, I really wanted to do too much, I think, but, but I think it is necessary to, and I presented about this at the AHA, um, and I I use the phrase conscious selection here. What I was trying to do was to cover a wide range of themes, a wide range of dates, and a wide range of geographical locales. And this was really constraining in a lot of ways. But, But this effort of consciously trying to avoid repeating certain themes that I'm very familiar with just because that's easier for me and diving into subject matter that I might not be as familiar with, that was one thing that I was very conscious of. So, you know, I I, I think I recognized after my PhD that I had not dedicated enough attention to issues like gender or material culture. And so I tried to include two chapters in here that deal with those themes in a a very in-depth way. Because I recognize that in a world history course, I really need to be talking about these issues. Um, also talking about some of, you know, in terms of themes, some of the, the broader issues that all world history historians address: the environment, disease, industrialization, urbanization, race, modernity. These, these are ideas that I think are historians use all the time and we don't necessarily talk to our students about what they mean. We don't necessarily introduce our students to the fact that understandings of these things might be very contentious among historians. And so trying to include this wide range of themes was one crucial element to this. The second thing, you know, when it came to the wide range of dates, Uh, I was working with the old AP framework. They had sort of six main eras, I believe, Um, and I was trying to include at least three cases from each of these eras. There's such a range of of ways the world historians divide up the past, though, it's always going to be a little problematic. There's no one way to do that. But I tried to use a very wide range of time periods. So this book, I go back to roughly 10,000 years ago, 10 to 20,000 years ago, and then right up to the present moment. And this is something that I am sort of unapologetic about. I think we need to take as broad a definition as possible of history. And for me, that really, I I locate that as human history. I'm not a big historian per se, but human history, the the breadth of human history to me is, is really, really important to address. And then the last thing, the geographical diversity. One of the things I find really frustrating, and I think many of my colleagues do as well, is one response to pressure to have more global courses is uh, what my colleague Tammy Schreiner and uh, and her mentor Bob Bain call Western Civ Plus, <laughs> which is basically like a narrative of Western civilizations, but then tack on a little bit of China, and you're good. And you know that that to me is just so problematic, and so. I tried to include a fairly representative slice of the world in this. So I have four, course, or four cases from the Americas, four from Europe, five from Africa, five from Asia, one from the Pacific Islands, Again, it's not perfect. It never will be. But again, you're not you're not looking at a book that has like half of its content are case studies that deal with European history and debates within that. Instead, it's a a very geographically diverse look at uh, at the world and, and trying to include case studies from you know, like places like the island of Java, right? I mean, the island of Java is just, uh, uh, in terms of population, just has an incredible number of people. It's been an incredibly important global hub for, for centuries, uh, millennia even. And it's not always uh, uh, done justice in world history courses. So, okay. trying to—I'm
0: I'm a Southeast Asianist. You don't have to.
1: <laughs> I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit there, and I think Africanists feel the same way too. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that yeah. you know, sub-Saharan Africa in particular, a lot of people are very leery of including that in their uh, uh, in their courses. And so, I really try and include a, a range of case studies from there as well. And, you know, the last thing, the last principle that's really important, and this connects to the chronological issue, I am unapologetically presentist, that in every case study that I do, I really try and bring it back to the world in which most of the history on that was written, and discussing the way that the present shapes our understanding of the past. And for me, this is just rooted in my own understandings of historiography, and how you know, it's very common for historians when we're talking amongst each other to discuss the way that the present influenced how authors presented a particular topic or how interpretations of, you know, say the, the, the nationalist moment in Southeast Asia have changed over time. You know, we do that amongst each other, but we rarely talk about that with our our students. And we act like it's some grave sin to discuss the way that the contemporary world influences our writing on the past. And I think we do a disservice to our students when we try to present history as though it's timeless, as though it's just you know, to borrow Ronka's phrase, you know, as it, as, it, as it happened, you know, as the past happened, I don't think we can necessarily do that. And I think we need to introduce students to the more complex elements of our discipline, the the messy debates between historians, and how that is crucial to the relevance of history at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, if that was beautiful, beautiful, the way almost every chapter starts with a discussion of something going on in, in the world today, and then you link it back to the past. So the opening chapter on um, uh, archaeological remains in the Pacific Northwest, you link it to uh, these debates on sort of, you know, racial politics in the United States today and tensions between white supremacist and Native American communities and so forth. And I, I, it just it really shows the way that, uh, history is political. And, um, I think that again, when we're getting overwhelmed teaching these world history courses, we can lose track of that. And, um, this sort of brings a lot of the excitement back into it. Hey, so reading the book, it was really clear that you were having a lot of fun. <laughs> writing is fun. You're it's just, it it's a, it's a fun book. Um, so what was your favorite case study to work on?
1: Well, first, thank you. Uh, I I did. You know, I was actually talking about this with a colleague of mine just a couple of days ago, and you know, I was thinking about when I wrote my dissertation, and I don't know what your experience writing a dissertation was, but I know after I finished it and I had a bound copy, I would get physically nauseous as I went to turn the pages. Like I was, <laughs> I was at that level of aversion to it. I think I think it took me almost nine months before I could even really open it and read it. I just. You know that that pressure and the exhaustion and the anxiety and and all of that. Whereas this book, I I, I use it all the time in my classes, and and I, I I still enjoy reading my own writing, so I feel like I I accomplish something for myself there. But you know, the chapter that that I like the most, and maybe you'll appreciate this, I guess, but I I don't think this is full on pandering. I, I really do mean this. Uh, the chapter on Weyang uh theater, oh, yeah. and. You know, this Uh, is...
0: uh, The shadow play.
1: Yeah, the shadow puppet shows. And I think, you know, the reason for this is my dissertation was enmeshed in colonialism and studying colonialism and its its variety of impacts. And, you know, I was very focused on a political economy sort of of approach to that as I wrote my dissertation. And the longer I studied it, the more I became intrigued by cultural elements of it. And the way that the moment of colonialism didn't just just shape, you know, the economy and shape, you know, politics, which obviously it did. But also the way that it influenced understandings of culture, the way that the colonial moment could also embed itself as a form of tradition, as, as sort of a reified version of tradition. And, you know, I was This was something I'd studied in the African context. Uh, Andy Vasca has done a great book called Cultured States, uh, talking about Tanzania and, you know, cultural shifts in the early post-colonial period. But, you know, I'd, I'd already written about East Africa in my book and I wanted to, you know, do a chapter on colonialism. But, you know, I looked at, you know, doing my conscious selection. I'm like, okay, maybe Southeast Asia. I haven't written anything about that. Maybe there's something here. And a friend of mine from the AP Read, uh, Eric Jones, uh, who's director of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University.
0: And, he, and also a I, podcaster with his uh, Southeast Asian Crossroads
1: podcast. Great guy. Formidable, formidable podcaster. And his advice to me was to read Lori Sears' book on yeah. Yang Theater. And, you know, as I was reading it, I just became fascinated. I, I'd never even heard of this topic right and just fascinated about the connections to the the Indian epics, the the connections, uh, the the remnants of contact with Islam that are sort of embedded in in these performances, Uh, the way it evolved in response to Dutch colonialism, the way the Dutch set up these institutes where, you know, you have this almost professionalization of it, and uh, the way that even though independence happens, that many Dutch understandings of what we yang should be became popular with some of the most powerful individuals within Wuyang theater and that that controlled notions of what is traditional and what is appropriate for uh, uh, we yang performers and also the challenges to that recently the crazy delong the the, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the, the the people who push back against that who have puppets drinking beer who have <laughs> puppets that represent George W Bush you know who who are really iconoclasts in their own way trying to present a line to a new generation and you know i really identified this debate over uh Wei Yang as a basically a unesco heritage site type of deal uh, yeah, as part yeah. of the common uh, tr- history of the world, and how similar the Indonesian government's presentation of it was to Dutch colonial representations of what Wuyang should be earlier. And these were not universally accepted, that there were many performers of Wuyang, members of the audience who felt Wuyang theater should be a very, very different thing. And so, exploring that and exploring in, in particular how power can be expressed in very different ways. And that power to shape tradition, to shape what is traditionally acceptable, to shape the way people uh, present particular cultural things can be every bit as real as political power or economic power. Um, again, it, it would have been a lot, in a lot of ways easier for me to write an economic analysis of colonialism. I'm sure I could have done that in the context of Southeast Asia as well. But to me, exploring this, this cultural performance was a way to challenge one of my own blind spots to think quite a bit harder about a, a, a topic that I didn't know much about and to really grow, I think, as, as a world historian.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I love that chapter too. Um, but as someone who works on in Indonesia had, it like, Oh, it needs a little more on Suharto and the Suharto dictatorship. There's a, <laughs> there's a really wonderful book called the dance that makes you vanish. Um, okay. and it's, uh, it's written by a woman, a Javanese woman who was trained in Javanese classical court dance oh, wow. and what she discovers. And she's a professor at, um, uh, University of Minneapolis Twin Cities now in uh, dance and, and gender studies and what she discovers is that her family had been purged in the, um, the PKI anti-PKI massacres, the, oh, wow. the mass killing of the Indonesian Communist Party and that she came from a family of performers but was raised by somebody else in the family because her parents were disappeared. And oh they were goodness, disappeared yeah. because they performed a popular dance. that was very risque and revolved that the PKI used in a lot of their rallies. So because they were performers, they, um, they got eliminated, uh, for, and wow. what the Suharto dictatorship did is actually, and this fits right in with your discussion of the Wayang puppet, uh, shows, they, um, Tried to purge those popular, sort of village-oriented dances, and right. wanted to uh, support the, especially the Yogyakarta court-style dance, which is very refined, oh, and very yeah. slow, and very thoughtful, and very elegant. That became what was Javanese dance, and it it they tried to crush over the popular tradition. There's a really amazing um, uh, cycle of novels that I teach. Uh, by Ahmad Tohari on this, um, called uh, The Dancer. It's in English, the the three novels are published as uh, The Dancer, and they even made a film about it. And it's about um, uh, a young woman who is performing these dances um, before the the communist massacre, during and after, and how she sort of was just doing the traditional village dance and then got caught up in this... In this massacre and suddenly she was politically suspect anyway
1: <laughs> no, but you see, not, and this is not to, not to hijack her. the
0: discussion but, no, no, uh, but I, this, I, did lo- I did love that chapter yeah
1: and the thing is you know every chapter i've written i think i've had a discussion like that with a specialist in yeah, that particular yeah, field yeah. and you know gvsu we have a bigger department we yeah. have you know i think 22 23 uh tenured or tenure track faculty and almost all of them have read, you know, one of these chapters, specialists elsewhere have read many of these chapters. And a lot of them, you know, you're going to get this feedback where oh, have you thought about this book, have you thought about this approach? Have you heard about this thing? And in a lot of cases, I just haven't, right? Because I don't, a book like this will always be a little bit unfinished, because I can't, be an expert on everything. And that learning process, that process of growing as a historian, learning about all these resources, these debates that had previously been, you know, foreign to me, it just, it's really been just such an enriching process for me as a, as an educator.
0: Yeah. Well, this is all great for your, um, you to push the uh, publishers to put out a second edition. (laughs) (laughs) So in, in, in each of these chapters, um, you, you frequently get into this, uh, you think you know about this topic, nah, you don't know jack about it game where um, <laughs> you, you challenge what we think we know and you do this from the history of yoga to the Vikings alleged blood eagle torture to the importance of Confucianism and understanding China to the significance of the Meiji restoration to the history of the banana in West Africa. You keep challenging us and forcing us to question what we think we know about history. And you challenge a lot of uh, conventional wisdom and a lot of things that world history instructors have to hold on to to make sense of the world. Um, <laughs> so, sir, why you got to rock the boat?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're being, you're being too kind. Um, I, I, you know what, though? I, I think... As an educator, one of the things that I really look for, and one of the things that I value most, is you know those uh, uh, to give it a a name, oh shit moments when you're <laughs> when you're teaching when when you have these moments where you can. Take something that people hold dear and say, you know, this actually might not, you know, might not be true. Uh, I remember one of those moments for me was uh, learning about sun salutation. I mean, I do hot yoga, I, I do that, I, I enjoy it. And I'd always thought of sun salutation, like, I never really thought about it historically, but I was like, oh yeah, we do it for the solstice. Maybe it's like a religious thing or something. I don't really know. And then learning that an Indian prince created it to warm up for his weightlifting, I was just, <laughs> that was a bit of a no shit moment for me. It was like, 1920s. how do I not know this?
0: Yeah, yeah and how do In I- the 1920s, it's not 5,000 years old, as many of my yoga instructors in Santa Cruz would lead me to believe
1: exactly and and those moments to me are what make history so fascinating make it so engaging and i think that's also true for a lot of students i think it's also true for a lot of instructors and so this book, in a lot of ways, is a compilation of those moments for me as I went through this process of, you know, first creating the, the the course based on the textbook, then reading a monograph on some of the things that I taught, then see having these moments and going in depth on a topic and, and reading a lot more about it, it just, you know, to me, that's just what makes history worth doing, what makes it so, so under, so, uh, so important. And, you know i think i think a lot of people think they can fake it that they can fake a <laughs> world history class and just give the content just show up lecture about it students will write it down they'll regurgitate it and you know everybody just moves on but i think you know students in every class you teach there are students who are engaged there are students who will be on wiki or on Google at moments during your lecture to see if what you're telling them is really true or really interesting. And if they, if they wiki you or Google, Google your, uh, uh, content and they find that they can get the exact same thing from Wikipedia or from some readily available source, like they're just going to stop showing up because they recognize like, what's the point? Um, And so you need, as an instructor, I think, to really be able to differentiate yourself from that. You really need to provide something unique in the classroom. And these case studies are are part of my effort to do that as well, um, to give the students things that are interesting, things that they would never think to Google ahead of time, things that maybe don't have easy answers.
0: Yeah, and what I loved about this... um this trope of okay, you think you know this, no, you don't know this. Um, is that it's a great way to teach historiography and show yeah. people that there are debates within the field. And there are in, in some of the chapters, um, I don't remember which one, but uh some of the chapters I was I was like, well, I I, I see both sides of the argument and I'm not sure where I come down here. Um, that there's still these open questions in uh uh amongst historians.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I think maybe it was the human sacrifice chapter with uh, the Mashika.
1: Yes. It was like,
0: there was layers and layers of complication where I was like, oh no, come on, Dave, you're, you're you're just really muddying the (laughs) waters here. Like, did they do it or not? And then, but that's kind of the point. It's like, well, there's a lot of conflicting evidence here and, and this is what historians do. So gosh, I guess you got me to start thinking historically. Hey, there we go. There we go. Great success. Um, So um, I I, I mentioned that, you know, a lot of these uh, essays kind of rock the boat here. Um, uh, Which do you think might be the most controversial? Um, And on a completely unrelated note, can you go back to Poland? Or can you go to Poland after (laughs) the essay on uh, Poland and the Holocaust?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i don't know if i'll be testing that anytime <laughs> soon now that the dude has been reelected, so yeah. yeah no i so the chapter he you're referencing is the chapter on jedwabne and those of you who have those of you in the audience who have studied the holocaust will probably be familiar with uh young gross's uh work on jedwabne and uh books that's called the, the book that's the book neighbors right
0: neighbors, exactly
1: right and you know that book was fascinating to me, and that became sort of the origins of that chapter. But then Anna Bickent wrote a really fascinating follow-up to it, uh, as I believe she was a journalist, but writing about the Polish response to it. And one of the things that was really interesting is how fraught the reception of it was in Poland and in Jed specifically where Jan Gross is basically accusing many Polish residents of Jedwabne of perpetrating a massacre during the Holocaust without really any pressure or incentive provided by the Nazis and the Germans specifically.
0: So these are Poles doing the killing on their own without being forced to do it by the Germans or the Nazis.
1: And killing their Jewish neighbors, Mm -hmm. uh, Gross argues, because of rampant anti-Semitism within the region. And the response to this is just, uh, it's so, so relevant to the contemporary world. Like there was a monument created to the massacre, but it indicated that the Germans and the Gestapo perpetrated the killing. And when the book came out, the Polish president at the time made this very courageous gesture of reconciliation, laid a wreath at the monument, and really represented this kind of effort to reconcile. But the people in the village literally had their radios on full, their TVs on full volume to drown out the ceremony that was happening in their backyard at this monument. Um, the monument was vandalized numerous mm-hmm. times mm-hmm. with swastikas, uh, uh, graffiti, and the president who did that uh, did not get reelected, at least in part because of the perception that he was betraying the Poles. And this idea that, uh, you know, again, something like the Holocaust feels like it should be relatively straightforward to remember, and that was absolutely not the case there. Uh, the Polish government uh, more recently banning, uh, uh, trying to ban... Analysis of Jan Gross's book uh, passed a law saying that anyone indicating the polls perpetrated the Holocaust uh, would be uh, uh, would be guilty of a crime. Um, very chilling intellectual environment. And again, you know, one of the things that struck me was there was a woman who saved a number of Jewish people during the Holocaust from Jed And at the end of World War II, she was terrified. People who she had protected were attacked by residents of the community, and she still lived there, but lived essentially in hiding. And, you know, when Gross's book came out, there was this effort to uh, memorialize her role in this um, by naming the public school in the town after her, and that was shot down. By local government. They refused to do that. And we often think, again, of people who saved Jewish people during the Holocaust. These are obvious heroes. These are the people who did uh, incredible things. Um, we don't often realize that, especially in Poland, um, after the war was over, those who uh, Jewish people who had hid were often killed after the war um, by Polish nationalists, partisans, um, people who, again, uh, just again, just uh, perpetrating these incredible uh, incredible crimes. So, yeah, that, that chapter, I think, very controversial. The other one I think that's very controversial and very timely is the chapter on Black Athena.
0: Mm, and Black yeah,
1: Athena, yeah. those of us who were alive in the 80s and 90s are kind of familiar with Black Athena from an earlier culture war. And, you know, Martin Bernal, as a scholar, has certainly been polarizing. He certainly made mistakes. Uh, He's, you know, the three volumes on it you know, have been analyzed and scrutinized and torn apart by numerous, numerous, uh, classic scholars. But on the other hand, the main case he made was that racism remained a problem in classics and that it was embedded in some of the foundational tropes in the discipline. And in 2019, the classics at the annual gathering of classicists, um, black professors, uh, Told uh, uh, the, the convention goers that they were being profiled by hotel security. And at the question period, one of the, uh, an independent scholar named Mary Frances Williams showed up and told an assistant professor from Princeton that he only got his job because he was black. And, you know, that clearly these are still issues overall narrative about a, a, a multicultural and well-connected Eastern Mediterranean world uh, uh, prior to say, you know, 1400, 1300 BCE has been, you know, roundly supported Absolutely. and I think is now yeah. taken yeah. for granted yep. by most scholars of the region. and by Most
0: world historians, but maybe not by classicists.
1: Yeah, not as much, although beginning to see uh, uh, some change. The book 1477 or 1277, sorry, is a, a really good mm-hmm. one on that. Um, but yeah, yeah, so those would be the two I would say yeah, that have yeah. been, I,
0: mean, uh, uh, I remember when we hired in uh, classical history um, a number of years ago at dinner, I'd, every candidate I'd ask them, what do you think of uh, Martin Bernal in black and Black? <laughs> Uh, two two claim they never heard of it and the other oh, wow. just just dismissed it and had no no opinion on it. Oh, my goodness. And um, don't know if they'd read it. Like, it was just not not part of the discussion. This was a few years ago.
1: Interesting.
0: So, <laughs> okay, well, you've been really generous with your time, but I've got just a couple, two more questions before um, I let you go. First can, and this is a a new books thing. I know it's a, on top of the world thing. Um, can you suggest two books that you want the listeners to read, um, related to world history, related to uh, whatever it's a a microphone, two books.
1: All right. Two books. And, you know, I think both of these books have really, helped me grow as a scholar. Um, they aren't necessarily world history classics or anything like this, but they reflect, I think, a, a shift in my own, you know, work as a historian. Um, the first I would really recommend that I read very recently is by Nick Estes called art history is the future. Hmm. And it's Nick, Nick sort of Estes,
0: art history is the future, our
1: history, our history. Is our history, is the our history okay. And, and he's writing from an indigenous perspective. Uh, and it's, you know nominally a history of the ghost dance movement but it's also a history of the DAPL uh, protests and the ways that indigenous resistance have manifested over time yeah and dappul's standing rock
0: the standing rock yes protests, exactly yeah. exactly
1: the, go, and go so on. he's he's definitely an activist Uh, there's no question about that. And, you know, this history isn't meant to be sort of a comprehensive overview of the ghost dance movement, but his argument as I read it, is that any vision of the future that excludes capitalism or in the case of native Americans, their, their own annihilation, which is, you know, as you know, has been a, a trope in American history for a long time. Um, any visions that challenge those things, visions of the future that challenge those things are forms of resistance, are forms of protest. And this weaving of history and activism together, I think is 100% something that I have come around to. I don't know that I necessarily began my PhD thinking these things, but as I read work by historians like him, I think it's really helped me grow. Uh, Another thing uh, in his research that he talks about a lot is representation and the need for Native Americans to tell their own stories in a variety of venues. Um, This again was something I probably wouldn't have agreed with at the beginning of my PhD, but I think I really do uh, agree with at this point. And you know, I think these are subjects that are uncomfortable for academics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we like to drive the research agenda regardless of our backgrounds and thinking about the ways that people might need to represent themselves and the ways, and then thinking again about the ways that, as academics, that we can amplify those voices rather than trying to represent whole peoples ourselves. I think that's something that I'm really uh, working on as a scholar. Yeah. So, and that, that was would
0: be- that was the subject of the the recent uh, American Historical Review uh, roundtable on the 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 review essay of. Uh, two books by native American scholars and the reviewer really took on the native American studies. And, uh, that, that did you see that? volume? I did,
1: I did not. I love what A-H-R, AHR has become in the last year the deep, or two. I think the there's been a real editorial. Shift. Is like, <laughs> yeah. Actually some,
0: some things I want to read in there that I really, I know, it. Right? <laughs> I, it was, it was, um, it must've been spring 2020. Um, maybe, maybe the um, the winner, um, but it was a round table on, um, uh, and it was it was quite good. It was quite good.
1: So. Yeah. So yeah, Nick Estes, our history okay. is the future. Okay. I again highly recommend that to any listener. Um, the second book that I would really recommend that I have been referencing so much lately is by Marissa Fuentes, and it's called Dispossessed Lives, and this is her history of women of color in 18th century Barbados Mm -hmm. and I think if I'm remembering correctly it's specific to slave women uh, uh, in Barbados in the 18th century and what she talks about that I found so interesting to me is she said, we need to be honest about archival silencing. That, you know, she's been through almost every record from that time period in Barbados. And, you know, there's one woman, Rachel Polgreen, who we have fairly detailed, uh, detailed information on. And that's about it. Like, like it, it isn't going to be just a matter of finding new voices and amplifying those voices. And what she says is, we need to change our research approaches. We need to change the way we do history of people who are purposefully being silenced by the archives, purposefully being silenced by, again, in this case, uh, a slave state in Barbados that was extraordinarily punitive. And her research methodologies, the way she talks about doing research on this, she really emphasizes, again, it's very much influenced by intersectionality, but she emphasizes how important it is to read with the archival grain, in the sense that we might not know a whole lot about the individual lives of individual women of color in 18th century Barbados, but we know a whole lot in aggregate through sources that often haven't really been used. Things like runaway slave notices, Um, the way that women of color were written about by people living in Barbados at that time. And by using that, we can create theoretical approaches that allow us to fill in the blanks, even if we don't know specific names, even if we don't know specific dates, to better understand the lives of people who have been erased. And, you know, I think uh, from grad school, I mean, I was familiar with Trio and and some, some... some stuff like this, Mm -hmm. but the way she weaves intersectionality and understanding archives, I just think is, is absolutely brilliant. And it's really forced me to think a lot harder about the things that I think are not recoverable and the things that maybe are, and I'm just not using appropriate approaches. So yeah, Marissa Fuente's uh, dispossessed lives is uh, another work that I would really recommend uh, your listeners read.
0: Great, great. So finally, what are you working on now? What can we hope to see from you in the future?
1: Well, I I got the book done. I'm kind <laughs> of uh, in, in a recovery mode, I guess. Um, what I do have coming out in the future uh, really is going to be my final chapter really on African studies on, on Karamoja, I have a book, uh, a book chapter coming out in a, an edited volume on Uganda, and it's just a brilliant volume. I, I love the scholars involved, and I really try to put my heart and soul into this and some of the, the things I've learned over the course of the last decade of doing world history and applying those things to my research. Um, so that chapter I've been working on for a couple of years and hopefully that will be coming out in the next couple of years. Uh, we, my family is, as I think you know, uh, we went kind of viral a little <laughs> while ago. So we've been working on uh, a book project connected to that that I don't have any more information on at the moment. Oh. But uh, look for things maybe in December. So that oh. is something that I'm really, really excited about. And... What else have I got? I don't know. Just surviving. Just COVID, trying to survive right? COVID, like, right? <laughs> <laughs> surviving COVID is kind of the the other main thing I am working
0: on, so. and and teaching valuable courses online. Uh. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> I'm all online, and and just one, yeah, just uh, shout out to everyone trying to put pressure on their universities to to go all online. I yeah. have no idea why yeah. anyone thinks face to face is a good idea in this context. <laughs> it shouldn't be done. Online education is, I know it's not ideal, but again, we are not in ideal circumstances and I'm really don't want our colleges to be responsible for, you know, a new wave of COVID-19. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully everybody can stay safe and hopefully majority of listeners are able to, yeah, able to work online.
0: Yeah. Well, Professor David Eaton, Dave, Stay safe, stay healthy. Um, And thank you so much for your time and for your excellent book. Thank you. So this has been a conversation with Dr. David Eden of Grand Valley State University and co-host of On Top of the World, a podcast about world history. I strongly suggest you check it out. Uh, We've been talking about his new book, World History Through Case Studies, Historical Skills and Practice from Bloomsbury Academic 2019. I'm Michael G. Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.